0: Well, good morning. This is uh, this is gonna get we have to get used to this. Uh, this is this is different for you. It's different for us too. I promise. Uh, but we're excited for all the changes and all the great things God is doing here at Red Brush, and uh, excited for uh, what the future holds and uh, whether that's physical things in the building, but but more importantly, as Ben said, lives changing, uh, hearts being. Uh, brought to the gospel uh, is why these changes are necessary. So uh, it, it's amazing what God is doing. Uh, well, my, name, my name is Alex. I'm uh, on staff here at Redbrush and uh, get the privilege to speak this morning. And I want to start uh, with probably a, a year that m- many of you remember well. Uh, who doesn't remember the great year of 1597? Um, and of course, I say 1597, your, your mind immediately goes uh, William Shakespeare, right? William Shakespeare is in his heyday. Uh, he debuts what would become one of his most famous uh, re- uh, published plays at that time. Of course, I'm talking about Romeo and Juliet and instantly every guy in the room is like, I'm out. What, what are we talking about here? So uh, if you're not familiar with the story of Romeo and Juliet, you probably either skipped that reading assignment in junior high or you've blocked it out of your mind. Uh, like I have, but Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy written about two Italian teens who fall in love. Of course, we're talking about Romeo Montague and Juliet Capulet. Now, the problem with their love is that the Montague family and the Capulet family are sworn enemies, and despite their searing hatred that their families have for one another, Romeo and Juliet fall instantly in love when Romeo sneaks into the Capulet ball and sees Juliet for the first time. Now, upon realizing that the relationship would be forbidden, Romeo sneaks through the Capulet orchard by Juliet's window and overhears Juliet professing her love for Romeo And in this balcony scene, which has become famous in the play, she utters these words. What is a Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would would smell as sweet. Now, I won't spoil the ending of Romeo and Juliet if you're still catching up on your cinematic history. You're just 426 years behind, but that's okay. Uh, But I want us to consider those words that Juliet pronounced that evening. What's in a name? What What does a name even mean? See, in this scene, Juliet wishes that Romeo would cast away his family name would be done with the Montague name. And if he's unwilling, then she is willing to cast off the Capulet name because the name is meaningless when it comes in comparison to the love she has for this young man. A name to Juliet is just a title by which we're addressed. It's, it's a random assortment of letters that bear no meaning on our life. And I think oftentimes we can have this same sort of mentality. Sure, our name is significant. I mean, that, that's, that's my name. Uh, I have great pride whenever I see Alex somewhere written. And I, I think it's fun when my kids are, are watching a movie and at the end or they see their own name on the credits, you know, as someone who is working on set. Or they'll see mine or my wife's name. Dad, that, there's Alex. They had your name. So our names mean something. But, but anybody else's name, and it's just, it's just a word I use to get their attention. They don't have great significance. But this stands in contrast to what the concept of a name means in the Bible. See, for a Hebrew, nothing existed until it had a name. A name expressed the essence of who that person is. It described characteristics of who that person is or would become. Have you ever wondered why, of of all the weird and and crazy names in the Bible, God had all names at his disposal. None had ever been used. And for the first man, he says, Adam. Adam. I mean, we go on to Methuselah and Mahibashef and all these weird, crazy names for our culture. And yet Adam is the first word, first name. Well, what does Adam mean? There's significance behind it. Adam means son of red earth. Now think about how Adam came to be. He was formed by the dust of the earth and breathed into uh, the breath of life, was breathed into him by God. So Adam literally means son of red earth. Eve, his wife, means mother of life. She would be the mother of all life that would come. Abraham, you know, we we kids sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Abraham means father of multitudes. Moses, baby who was put in a wicker basket that was placed down the river, and he ended up in the reeds where he was found. And he was named Moses. Why? Because Pharaoh's daughter found him there and drew him out of the reeds. That's what Moses means. See, our names have significance. So I, upon studying this, I had to do a little research for myself, and I thought, you know, what are some of our ministers' names mean? So, well, Ben... Means son and Farley, Meadow of the Sheep. So Ben is the son of the meadow of the sheep. But you know, if you, you hear that, and then I was like, Man, that's not that cool of a name. <laughs> but he is our chief shepherd, ch- chief shepherd. So it's fitting. Jonathan Goodman. Jonathan means gift of God. You might want to hold on to your hats because Goodman means good man. <laughs> Jonathan is gift of God, and he is a good man. Jonathan's a good man. Gary means spear. Barbie means foreign woman. <laughs> no comment. Uh, Penny, I think, I, Penny has, has a great one. Penny means weaver Arnold means eagle power i take that name, eagle power All right. Uh, now my name, and I, I cheated because I know my middle name, I know my full name So Alex, and my name is Alex, not Alexander It means defender of the people And Foltz comes from the German word Volk, meaning people So my name is defender of the people and it emphasizes people. Um, But Nicholas is my middle name and it means victory of the people. So not only am I the defender of the people, I bring victory, all right? So, um, but I I do love people and I love connecting with people. And so as I learned that, I thought that was a fitting name. Now, despite the feelings that Juliet had there is great meaning in a name and again aside from from gary's i can't make sense of that one but i feel like we had some fitting names for us but see this morning we'll be in psalm 103 and david understood the importance of a name when he wrote psalm 103. now we have no clear timetable for when david wrote psalm 103 we're not sure it's possible maybe even likely that he wrote it late in his life a psalm that he's reflecting back over his life and thinking about all the things that god had done and the ways that god had been a part of his life but right off the off the top we understand that psalm 103 is a psalm of praise it's a psalm in which David is praising God for, for so many different attributes and so many different things that he's accomplished. And what we see in Psalm 103 is David is willing to praise God in every season, no matter what. And he begins this way, verses 1 and 2. It says, My soul bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul bless the Lord, and do not forget All his benefits. You know, as David reflects on his life, he sees these attributes of God evident in the way that God moved all throughout his life. And he says, God, in every season, every season of my life, in the good times and the bad times, I will bless your holy name. This is where the importance of names is lost on us. You see, when we read the Bible, we see, bless the Lord, or it might say God Almighty. We see the name Yahweh, or even Jesus. And we just read those names and move on. We lump all these names together. But to the Hebrew, reading the Psalm 103, they would have read these benefits that David goes on to describe and recall specific names that they had for God, specific names that described who God was. And while there's far too many for us to highlight, far too many as for, the, for us to cover them all, I do want to hone in on just a few of them this morning that speak to different seasons in the life of David. First, David calls God a healer, which is found in the name Jehovah Rapha. Look at verses 3 and 4. Right away, he says, he forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. Verse five, he satisfies you with good things. Your, Your youth is renewed like the eagle. David had called upon the Lord for healing all throughout his life. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, He tried to cover up the pregnancy, uh, but ended up having a child. And this child becomes ill. Turn with me to, to 2 Samuel, chapter 12. What we see here is David is in a situation that no parent envies. He finds his son sick. Starting in verse 15, it says, The Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife, which is Bathsheba, had born to David, and he became deathly ill. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to get him up up from the ground, But he was unwilling and would not eat anything with them. On the seventh day, the baby died. But David's servants were afraid to tell him the baby was dead. They said, look, while the baby was alive, we spoke to him, and he wouldn't listen to us. How can we tell him the baby is dead? He may do something desperate. When David saw that his servants were whispering to each other, he guessed that the baby was dead. So he asked his servants, is the baby dead? He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. He washed, anointed himself, changed clothes, went to the Lord's house and worshiped. Then he went home and requested something to eat. So they served him food and he ate. So David's child is deathly ill and he pleads with God to heal him. He fasts for seven days. He doesn't eat, he doesn't do anything, but he simply prays and prays. But in the end, the child dies. Now, maybe you're thinking, uh, I thought that this was about God being a healer. This isn't a good story uh, for that, Alex. I, I, I don't know if you know that. Uh, and I understand that. But, but look back at Psalm 103. Psalm 103 verse 4 says, he redeems your life from the pit. That the word here in your Bible may say pit, it may say grave. See, what we see is God brings us, brings life up from the grave. Back in 2 Samuel, going on with the story, his servants asked him, why have you done this? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept, but when he died, you got up and ate food. Listen to David's response. He answered, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will not return to me. David understood that healing doesn't always look the way we think it will. True healing from God is more than just a physical healing here on this earth. David, though grieved, knew that he would be reunited with his child on the day when God heals all things. It wasn't just about that moment. I love David's response. I'll go to him. He won't return to me. What hope is found in those words? I think hope that we all can resonate with at some point in our life. You see, in all seasons, David knew that God was a healer, Jehovah Rapha, and he was worthy of our praise. Next, back in Psalm 103, David points to God's provision. Which they would refer to God as Jehovah Jireh. Verses 5 and 6 says, He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. David first points back to, to Moses and the Israelites. Think of what that means, the way that God provided for the Israelites and for Moses during the Exodus. First, God raises up Moses to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. He provided signs and wonders to Moses, not only to show who he was, but to prove to Pharaoh who God was. He provided the ten plagues to provide Uh, proof of his power he promises to provide victory over their enemies in the promised land a land in which he was also providing for them after they doubt his ability to take them into the promised land they wander in the desert for 40 years and yet throughout this 40 years God provides for them time after time after time fresh water to drink food in the form of manna every morning and quail. He also provides protection for this nomadic group of people for 40 years while they wander, protecting them from their enemies. You see, every Hebrew reader reading Psalm 103 would have read the name Moses and instantly connected with the Exodus story and the amazing ways that God had provided during that time. You see, every year, the Israelites would celebrate the feast of the Passover as a reminder for the provision that God had given them in the Exodus. So even saying the name Moses, they instantly think of the Passover. They think of the Exodus and all the ways that God had provided. But David also knew God's provision, not just from the stories he had learned growing up as a boy, but also from his experience with God. You see, before David was installed as king, he served on the court of King Saul, king over Israel. He was a a lyre player. He played musical instrument for Saul. And and to say that David and Saul had a difficult relationship would really be underselling it. Uh, David would play music that soothed Saul. Saul threw spears at him. Uh, David... Saul became jealous of David. David ends up marrying Saul's daughter. But in order to pay the dowry price uh, to to marry his daughter, he has to go on what's basically meant to be a suicide mission. And uh, I'll let you look up the details of that one if you'd like. Um, But Saul wants him dead. That's why he goes on this mission. David's best friend is Saul's son, Jonathan. And Jonathan helps flee, or David flee from Saul before he can kill him. So guys, if you think you have a rocky relationship with your father-in-law, consider the life of David. Unless your father-in-law's throwing a spear at you, you're doing pretty good. But as David is fleeing from Saul, he finds himself at this place called Nob. And this story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. It says, David went to the priest Ahimelech. See, there's one of those weird names. He goes to the priest Ahimelech at Nob, and Ahimelech was afraid to meet David. So he said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? David answer, answers the priest Ahimelech, the king gave me a mission. But he told me, don't let anyone know anything about the mission I'm sending you on or what I've ordered you to do. I've stationed my young men in a certain place. Now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest told him there's no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread, but the young men may eat it only if they have kept themselves from women. David answered him, I swear that women are being kept from us as always when we go out to battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission. So of course their bodies are consecrated today. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. When the bread was removed, it had been replaced with warm bread. One of Saul's servants detained before the Lord there was there that day. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, do you have a sword or spear, or do you have a sword or spear on hand? I didn't even bring my sword or weapons since the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want to take it for yourself, then take it, for there is none like it. Give it to me, David said. So here we see David on the run, and God provides for him not only food for his travel, but the very sword of Goliath as well. And if you're familiar with this time in David's life, David's on the run. A few chapters later, he finds himself in a cave, and uh, Saul is chasing after him, trying to find him, and and David's hiding. Saul goes in uh, to use the restroom, and David is able to sneak up on him in order to kill him, but David decides to spare his life. And what does he do? He cuts off a piece of his cloak, using the very sword that he received, most likely, the sword of Goliath. I just—I learned that this week. I thought that was a cool detail. He received Goliath's sword. And in the moments when things are tough, we may not always know what help will come our way. We may not always know when help will come our way. But we can look back through scriptures. We can look to the life of Abraham, Moses, David, and all throughout the history of Israel. We can look back on our own life and see how God has provided because we know that God will provide. Sometimes it's difficult in the moment to understand, how am I gonna get through this? But when we look back two, three, four, five years from now, we see God really was with me. And just as David knew that in all seasons, he could, God would provide for him, we can know that in all seasons, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, is worthy of our praise. Now, this brings us this morning to a name that is actually so strong, it has such a rich meaning that it means many things at once. It may be a, a name that you've heard El Shaddai means God Almighty. In this one, we see God as one who satisfies, protects, is more than enough, and a God who keeps his promise. This is the name that God first gave to Abraham in the book of Genesis. See, before God revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh in Exodus chapter 3, he was known as El Shaddai to the patriarchs. And El Shaddai reminds us that God, is a God of our, uh, that God is our satisfaction. Again, Psalm 103, we've read it, but it says this. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like an eagle. When I read that, that God is the one who satisfies us, I'm reminded of what James says, that every good and perfect gift Originates from God. It is found in who God is. Later in Psalm 103, verses 17 through 19, David writes this From eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him, and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. We can be assured that God, El Shaddai, is a promise keeper. Now David, in these verses, speaks of a covenant that God had promised to keep. Now when we hear covenant, we often think uh, maybe of a marriage covenant. Uh, What a covenant is, it's an oath-bound agreement between two different parties. Now what makes a covenant covenant? in the Bible so unique is that when God establishes a covenant, it is bound by his word, not ours. And God cannot break his promises. He cannot break his oaths because he is unable to lie. And so there's five central covenants in the Bible. Uh, This is just for you to know. We don't have to write it down or anything. But of course we have the new covenant, which we're most familiar with fulfilled in jesus there's the covenant of noah probably familiar with that as well anytime you see a rainbow we're reminded that god will never again flood the earth there's the covenant with abraham in which god promises to make abraham into a great nation and to bless all people through him there's the mosaic covenant in which god provides the law to guide them and the fifth covenant is the Davidic covenant the covenant that God made with David? So when David is saying, "Righteousness towards the grandchildren of those who keep His covenant," he's talking about a God who made a covenant with him. David writes about this in Second Samuel, chapter seven, verses eleven. Through 13. It says, The Lord, uh, this is the prophet Nathan speaking to David on behalf of God. The Lord declares to you, The Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes, you will rest with your fathers. I will raise up after you your descendants, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, at first glance, we're thinking, okay, this is Solomon he's talking about. Uh, Solomon is David's son after uh, his child with Bathsheba died. And David is being promised here by God that Solomon would become king. And in fact, Solomon does. Uh, He builds up the temple into the house of God's name, just as it said. But this covenant was not just speaking of Solomon. It was speaking also of Jesus, whose kingdom would be established forever. You see, David rested in El Shaddai, knowing that God Almighty satisfies and fulfills all his promises. In times in our life where we're feeling like God is not there, he's not present with us, he's he's forsaken us, we can rest in God's promise, knowing that he has not abandoned us. And though we may not see it, we know that he is there. Because in every season of our life, El Shaddai, God Almighty, is worthy of our praise. For all the qualities that David describes in Psalm 103, there's one that he really wants his readers to key in on. You see, Psalm 103 is written in the form of something called a chiasm. Now chiasm is an an ancient literary device, a a thing that they would use back in uh, ancient times in writing in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then it's presented again in reverse order. So something like point A, B, C, B, A, if that makes sense. Uh, In fact, there's chiasms that we still use today. We just don't really use that word chiasm. Uh, And this is where I need some call and response to make sure that you understand what a chiasm is. Because I think you'll you'll recognize, a lot of you will recognize this one. So this is a call and response. All right, so God is good all the time. And all the time, it's a chiasm, right? First part, God is good. Second part, all the time. Repeat all the time god is good so psalm 103 now that's a shortcut short chiasm obviously there's much longer ones uh, and psalm 103 takes on this form of a chiasm now in modern culture when we want to emphasize something we'll repeat it we'll say it over and over again we'll say it in different ways but that's not the way they did things in a chiasm in a chiasm uh, in a chiastic structure, it's actually the center point of the chiasm that the, the reader would key in on. Sometimes it would be repeated, sometimes not. But the important thing was, what is at the center of this chiasm? So what was the point that David wanted his readers to understand in Psalm 103? Verse 12 we find ourselves in the center of this chiasm. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In a psalm praising God for all the amazing things that God has done, the focus of the psalm is on God's forgiveness towards David. David would have known God in this way, as Yahweh has said, meaning God of forgiveness. See, David knew well the forgiveness of God. Sure, we think of King David as the king of Israel, the man after God's hearts, the conqueror of Goliath. But David had his issues of his own. <clears throat> we know by name in the Bible that David had at least eight wives, likely more, plus concubines with which he had children. His first wife, Michael, which was Saul's daughter that we mentioned earlier, uh, she was David allowed her to keep an idol in their home. And of course, we've touched already upon the infamous story of David and Bathsheba, in which David sees a woman who's married to another man and, and desires her so much, he sleeps with her, and when she's pregnant, he then calls her husband back from war, hoping that he would then sleep with her and that he could pass the child off as Uriah's. But when Uriah, being a good man, doesn't want to, he doesn't want to, to enjoy the, the love of his wife when his mates are out at battle still, David has to take matters into his own hands. He sends Uriah to the front line and tells the captain that when the enemy approaches for them to retreat and leave Uriah to die. So in David, we have murder, adultery, idolatry, lying, and polygamy. Four of the Ten Commandments, and dishonoring God's plan for marriage between one man and one woman. You see, David needed God's forgiveness just as much as anyone else. And he knew well the name of Yahweh has said. God's forgiveness in David's life led him to write this psalm, along with many others, praising God for his forgiveness. Think about what David says here in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Think about what that means. Imagine you're holding a globe in your hands. Run your finger north and south, and eventually you reach a point where You go so far north and you begin to move south. You go far south and you begin to move north. North and South Pole. Now imagine doing the same thing. Run your finger west around the globe. At what point do you begin to move east? You never do. At what point do you begin to move west if you're traveling east? You never do. There's no point in which east and west intersect the way north and south do. And David says that God has removed our sins as far apart as east is from west. There's, there's no, nothing farther. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded that God has removed my sins as far away as they possibly can be. I need to know that God forgives me in that way. Because though I know that God has forgiven me, I struggle to forgive myself. I know the hurt that I've caused people. I know the things that I've said. I know the things that I've done. And I can't seem to forget some of the mistakes that I've made. And they still cause guilt in the pit of my stomach from time to time when I think about them. I need to be reminded, just as David did, of Yahweh Hased, the God who forgives, because I need forgiveness in my life. And while we may not call God by the name of Yahweh has said the God who forgives, we're reminded of his forgiveness in the symbol of the cross. You see, it was on the cross where Jesus showed us exactly what it means to remove our sins as far as east is from the west. And while we may not address God as El Shaddai or Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh has said, we recognize God as the one who satisfies us, who heals us, who provides and forgives when we call on the name of Jesus. See, it's in Jesus in which all of these things are fulfilled. Do we reject the forgiveness that he provides to us or do we surrender to it? We say each week that when we're encountered with the forgiveness of God, when we're encountered with the gospel for the first time, we're forced to respond. We have to make a response. Maybe that response is to surrender to God and maybe it's to ignore it. But we respond either way. Last week, something pretty amazing happened. Um, After the message, a couple approached Ben after second service. Uh, they had been discussing being baptized and had planned on being baptized that morning, last Sunday, uh, at another church, but circumstances had kept them from being able to follow through on that. Feeling that God was, was urging them still to come to church, they decided to come here to Redbrush. To my knowledge, a church that neither of them had had attended, or at least in a long time. Little did they know that That weekend and that morning, Ben had wrestled over how do I end my sermon? How do I wrap this sermon up? And felt that morning that he simply needed to end the message with the urgency to make a decision to be baptized. You see, God knew what message needed to be presented. He knew that the message of forgiveness delivered through Ben last Sunday would reach its intended audience. And so last Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m., Shanda Hargis and Logan Hutchins returned to Redbrush. Brush. This room was a mess, chairs were everywhere, and were baptized into Jesus. We have a video for you to watch. I love that look on Logan's face just as he's getting ready to be baptized. You can see the joy in his smile. Um just an amazing amazing story of God calling his people and his people responding. And last week after first service, Haley Rosh approached Ben feeling like God was leading her to be baptized. And uh I'm excited that uh, she's here, isn't she? <laughs> Uh, Second service, she actually won't be out here singing. She'll be getting baptized. Uh, So that's amazing as well. We can praise God for that. See, no matter what season of life you find yourself in, whether you're you're needing provision in your life, whether you're needing some comforts, whether you're needing direction, We have a God who satisfies us in all ways. We have a God who provides for us in every way. Most importantly, he he brings for us salvation and forgiveness through his son, Jesus. This morning, if you've never made that decision, we cannot stress the importance of giving your life to Christ for the very first time. There's nothing greater, no greater decision that you will make in your life than to surrender to Jesus in baptism. Think back to Logan's face. Think to that joy that he had, knowing all of my sins are brought from me as far as the east is from the west. The guilt is gone. The shame is gone. I can live for Him. During this song, if if that's a decision you want to be ma- you want to make, or you want to talk about it, or you want to know more about. I'll be up here in the front. Ben'll be here. I know either of us would love to talk to you. At some point today, if, if you want to find one of us or one of our elders or staff to have that conversation, you don't have to make a decision today, but if you if you have questions, if you want to know more about it, we want to encourage you, to ask those questions. There's no wrong question that you can ask. We want to help you. We want to walk with you through this. But if you're saying, you know what, I have questions, but I just know that God is calling me to do this. We're here. There's nothing we would want more than to have you baptized today. It's already warmed up. Won't be cold. So would you stand as we sing and come to this time of decision?